Hello, this is Doc Scott with my 90-day devotional um, called No More Cycles. I think the hardest part about doing these Facebook Live sessions is trying to get my hair to look right. I never, I never know what to do with it. Um, generally speaking, I'm going to do the Facebook Live part at 7 o'clock on Monday through Friday. I'm not typically going to do it on the weekend, although I'll post on my blog, Doc Scott Talks. Dot com, I'll post a devotional. So there is a devotional for every day, and t this one today is January um, the 5th. Um, but I won't necessarily have the, the you know Facebook component to it on the weekend. But at any rate, so today's topic is um, essentially um, the connection to violence and shame and how those two are kind of married to each other um, not necessarily the kind of violence we're always thinking of. It doesn't mean that because I feel ashamed I just had a drive-by shooting and I came back in here. Not necessarily like that, but also just, you know, anger, the things that kind of um, perpetuate um, addictive cycles. And I'm going to kind of demonstrate that here briefly in the um, text, the Bible, to show you what that looks like. But one of the first scenarios we have which is actually one of the best, is the story of Cain and Abel. Um, if you remember the story, you know, Cain brought an offering. You know, it doesn't say, um, it just says an offering, but Abel brought an offering that was like the best. And there was already this kind of place in shame um, with Cain. And the part that I want to focus on today is the part where he kills his brother. You know, that's kind of um, extreme, but... Essentially, God gave him a chance to kind of get it right because he said, look, if you don't do, if you do what's right, um, will you not be accepted? You know, in other words, um, if you had brought something that was acceptable and not just been maybe um, nonchalant or just not really caring about it or ignoring the fact or, or even just having no regard um, altogether. But he said, the next part that he says is, sin is crouching at your door, but you must master it. And so there is this connection to what we're going to be tempted to do in our shame if we don't do something um, to be aware that there is a temptation. Shame is something that drives violence and it drives a lot of wars. It's kind of at the core of a lot of revenge um, because shame always has a target and the target's going to go one of two directions. It's going to go either inward into self-contempt or it's going to go outward and it's going to be projected onto someone else. Cain basically projected his shame onto Abel and instead of actually making a different decision, because I think it's interesting that God kind of let him know that sin was crouching at his door, but he must master it. What was he really saying with that? That on some level, when you're experiencing shame, you are more vulnerable. And I think that's part of the key, that with shame, there is a vulnerability to acting in ways to try to nullify the shame. And like I said, it either goes into something that's self-destructive, you know, which would feed into an addiction pattern, or it's going to get projected out here, which is going to be abuse. So if it's inward, it usually feeds self-contempt, which also fuels that addiction cycle. If we project shame outward, 
In other words, to get it off of us, then we end up doing something to somebody else, whether that's, and violence pretty broad, you know, I've been pretty violent with my words. Um, you can, there's a lot of ways to look at violence, but essentially that it's that rage and contempt is going to go to self-contempt or other-centered contempt. In the case of Cain, it definitely went towards his brother. And, you know, he was given, like I said, that warning that essentially you're going to have something to do here in your vulnerability. You're going to have a choice what to do with it. It also means he had a different choice, but he didn't take it. Then if you fast forward in the Old Testament to the rape of Tamar by Amnon. Um, Amnon, you know, Tamar was his half-sister. And he basically set up a plot. Um, this is called premeditated rape, essentially. He set it up so that he would be, you know, sick and that she would have to come feed him, take care of him, and then he would essentially rape her. And I think the outcome of that one is one of the best examples of what happens when we project shame onto another. Because like I said, shame always has a target. In me, as self-contempt, or in that direction as other-centered contempt and violence. Well, after she basically begs him not to do it. You know, brother, this is wrong. You know, like we're kind of related, you know, like and it, it's wrong anyway because it's rape, but it was, it was incest and rape at the same time. And she offers a solution, which probably wouldn't be the best, but it's like, look, if you're really in love with me, then you can marry me because in that time you could marry a half-sister like that. You know, he, he could have done this in the context of marriage, which also shows that his motivation wasn't love. And rape is, is seldom about sex or love. It's usually about violence, which tells me, too, if you think about it, that Amnon probably already had something in him that had a propensity towards violence to begin with. Tamar may have been, you know, one in a long stream. The text doesn't tell us if she was the first person, first girl that he ever raped. Or it could have been something that he was going to become had he not been killed in revenge by his brother Absalom. So she begs him and gives an opportunity to get out. And he does it anyway. And essentially she says, you know, she tells him, where am I going to go? Because my shame will be so huge you basically are going to destroy my life. You're not just going to rape me, but in the context and culture that, that we live in, she was going to be destitute for the rest of her life. She wasn't going to have a life because where could a girl go who's probably raped and pregnant in the culture of that time? So, but he does it anyway. And then it says something really interesting. Then he hated her. Like he vehemently hated her and he doesn't heed her what she begs him to do to take her in, not to put her out there, whatever. And he tells her to go away. So that's one of the best examples of what happens when we don't manage that kind of the, the shame or that feeling of not enoughness or being defective or wrongness that we feel and it gets projected and becomes violence. So you have um, both Abel and you have Tamar who are both the recipients of that. Um, on the self-contempt, I'm gonna kind of finish with this today. If you think about addiction and what drives addiction, um, it's good to know this. 
Satan is aware of your anatomy. He understands how the brain functions. And we have this little thing here in the, <laughs> in the little forefront of our brain. It's my little ADD center, right? Um, but it's also this, you have the reward center of the brain. And the reward center of the brain, and I'm going to talk more about the connection to shame and addiction as we go in the further devotionals. But essentially, the reward center of the brain is driven by dopamine. So it's all, it's like, it's dopamine driven. So when we have a reward, which could be um, having an intimate encounter with our wife, it could be um, all kinds of things. Having, you know, anything that brings you joy affects that part of your brain. One of the things that they uncovered in a lot of the research or that became real apparent in the research when I was doing my dissertation was that um, there was a big shift in the literature from um, previous to um, discovering some things about behavior in the brain. There was already a well-documented history in, in the you know, scientific literature of how the reward center works with addictions to substances like crack cocaine or whatever, that, that even those addictions were basically driven by dopamine. And so you do the addiction to get the dopamine released, right? The big connection was that substances were already kind of established was behavior. That you could actually have a behavior that creates dopamine and does that little spritz that the brain loves. And that it becomes driven in the same way that a substance abuse. What does that mean? Well, it means that addiction could have as much power as crack essentially in terms of your brain, but they both affect the same place. So when you when I made this statement about, you know, Satan kind of knows your anatomy, well, here's where those two go together. Shame that's turned inward as self-contempt becomes part of a self-perpetuating process. And it, where addiction fits is in the addiction, there's this connection to dopamine, right? And in that in that connection, though, there's a place in that process where literally dopamine creates a euphoria that kind of releases us in the moment from any thought of consequence. You see how that fits into addiction. I have the euphoric experience because of the addiction, and I'm momentarily released from any thought um, of consequence, which does what? drives the, it makes me go further into it, bring shame into it. I do the thing I don't want to do in this addiction. I have this great little rush of dopamine in my brain and I feel really bad about it. Shame, right? That says I'm defective. Something's wrong with me. Um, and then I go back into it. And so shame and addiction go hand in hand. And the enemy understands my, my biology too. He understands our brain. Why do I say the enemy? Because at that juncture, um, you also bring in a demonic element. You know, there are demonic aspects it's that are, you know, there's aspects to addiction that are diabolical. And so, you know, Satan and the enemy working in tandem with the addiction cycle and this dopamine thing that I got going on with my reward system and the fact that there is shame that doesn't get um, acknowledged becomes something that gets woven together. So, like I said, to sum it up, you got shame goes in two directions, either gonna go outward onto someone else, 
or it's going to get go inward as self-contempt and make its way into fueling an addiction because somehow when we feel that feeling, that's what we're trying to get rid of. Shame fuels addiction because the addiction momentarily, because of the reward center of my brain, gives me a momentary release from the sense of consequence or from shame itself. But at the same time, once that moment's over, I'm back in it again. Does that make sense? We're going to actually talk about it a lot more. So at any rate, I wanted to make that connection to violence with the rape of Tamar and Absalom. And I just want to pray something for us. Um, pray You could pray together with me on this one. But I'm going to ask the Lord, Lord, I'm asking you to kind of make that connection in us. Lord, that in all of the places where we have been engaged, where our shame has kind of moved into this place of self-contempt, and it fuels this thing about us that we believe ourselves not to be enough, to be defective, to be wrong, I just ask that you would highlight that place and you would begin to just totally dissolve it in us. That you would... Um, literally change even the mechanisms and the way that our brain works. And in all of the places, I, here's another part of this. Let me say it this way. I bless my story. Okay. There is something about the power of blessing that will break the power of shame in your life. And so a lot, most of us, we have places in our history that we put out there as being something really, really huge. And it's really only a micro dot in the book of life, okay? So in God's picture, this thing that has been something really large for us, we shouldn't let the micro dot determine what the whole book looks like. You can't let one chapter of the book destroy the entire book. And so blessing my story means that I bless all the things that are in my history, the things that made me who I am today. Some of those were things that I did, right? I have my own sin, but I also have things that were done against me or to me. And as horrific as some of those things may have been, in blessing my story, I am breaking the power of shame over my story. Because when we bless, we move in the opposite direction of the thing we are blessing. So when Jesus said, love your enemies, there is power in that. Um, there is real significant power in loving an enemy. I have a simple um, one that I wanted, I can tell a, a short, quick story on about the power to bless and to bless an enemy or to bless someone that you feel persecuted. Um, at one juncture, there was an administrator at our school um, that um, I had gotten into a conflict with. And essentially, I couldn't resolve it any way that I, any direction that I went. And I didn't understand why it was the way it was. And, and so I decided after um, just kind of praying about it that I would give them a gift card and essentially um, with a note that was saying, you know, kind of forgive me for what I've done in the conflict or relationship. And I bought a gift card to a restaurant, you know, to a local restaurant. And, it, you know, it ended up that that same person came back around and our relationship was connected again. 
In fact, it became a place where we were actually able to share stories as believers and kind of encourage one another. It was very powerful. It became a turning point in that relationship. And it was simply because I wanted to bless in a place that I didn't know how to resolve. This person wasn't an enemy, but essentially there was something there that needed to be repaired. And I wasn't going to do it by, I couldn't do it any other way. So I just say that to say, bless your enemies, bless your story. And Jesus, we invite you that as into this process, as we bless, that we will reap and, and see the reward of what it means when we move in the opposite spirit. I guarantee you, if you bless people that hurt you or bless your own story, you're going to begin to see changes in your own heart. And you're going to see changes in the people that you have conflict with or that there is some sort of unresolved aspect to your relationship or that you've been hurt by. Bless them and watch what happens. It's a kingdom dynamic. Life and death are in the power of the tongue. So if you release life and release blessing, it has to have an impact. Some people are at odds with their own children. Bless your children, bless your employer, bless whoever, but begin to do that in a very intentional way. Bless their finances, bless their family, bless what God's doing in their life, any, any and everything you could think of to bless them. And I guarantee you, you'll see a shift. And in blessing our own story, that which has happened to us, good, bad, and indifferent, we begin to make room for God to move into our story and do something different. You can't be shame-filled while blessing your story because that's where shame comes in because of what happened in the story. Bless the story, bless your own life, and something is going to get broken there in Jesus' name. So, um, just to recap, I do these, I'll do the Facebook Live Monday through Friday usually, sometimes on the weekends, sometimes not, but there'll be a post every day on my blog. So you can go to docscotttalks.com and get the daily devotional. It's a 90-day gig that we're doing, um, and we're in day five, and um, I look forward to um, hearing stories as you participate together. Um, it's impacting me as much as it's impacting anybody that's watching it or, per, or reading it. So blessings.